Well, if you look around the church today and our culture and our world, there are a lot of controversial issues. And today, we come to deal with one of those. In fact, this topic is probably, of all the issues that are going on in the church, in our culture, in our world, is the most relevant right now. It is, in fact, the most important to be dealing with. And even as I say that, you might think, oh, are we going to talk about religious freedom because that seems so relevant? Or you might think, are we going to talk about sexuality or about the sanctity of human life? For others of you, you might guess it could be something to do with politics or justice or poverty. And I agree, all of those are current today and all things we're talking about, but we come to a different one, a different one this morning, a different topic. And in comparison to these other ones, I admittedly, it may seem a little bit dull or a little bit boring. But it is this issue today that is the most relevant, is the most important in comparison to all the rest. And here's how we've gotten to this issue today. We've been in this series called Only God. And we've been looking at the life of Paul and the cities he visited. And the reason we've called the series Only God is because every city he enters, we step back and we say, only God could have done that. And we see God in some ways doing the same things, but he, we see him doing different things in each city too. And we look in and we long for the work of God in our midst, in our church, in our region, in the same way. And we say, only God. And through the series, we've seen Paul's strategy, what he does, but we also then recently, we're still seeing the same strategy in recent cities, but we've covered that. So we're asking ourselves the question, what is unique about each city? And so now this week, we come to a little small city, not, not really that well known, not a big place, but we come and we get to see something so unique in this city. It's like God has given us this city for this reason, for this topic, for this relevance today. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm excited to read this passage to introduce you to this city and this church of believers. It's Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 10. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles, turn them on. We don't get very much information on this church, but let me read it for you. And for those that don't have a Bible, you will see the verses on the screens. Here's what the Word of God reads. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned what Paul was preaching, the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but, Paul, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and, they, and then left him with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. 
And there is the story of the city of Berea, but also this church that gets started in Berea. And we see Paul, same strategy. He arrives, he preaches the word of God, and then what does God do? Only God, many people believe in Jesus. But we just have really one verse that talks about the uniqueness of these, this people and this city. All the rest is mostly Paul's travel itinerary. But it's verse 11, and in verse 11, we both get a heart for the Bereans. We see their heart, and we see what they did. And you'll see this verse come back up again. What was their heart? Well, is they were of more noble character. They had these outstanding character qualities. And sometimes when we think of nobility, we may think of them being elevated, them sort of being higher than others and maybe looking down. But this is not the case with the Bereans. Their nobility was they were open to learn. They were open to receive and listen, almost like a childlike faith. We have information that we need to take in, and we're ready to learn and receive and repent if necessary. And so their character, their heart, was one of nobility. And then what was their action? You see it there in the second half of the verse as it comes up. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they're diving into the Word of God. They're diving into the Scriptures. And what are they looking for? They are looking for truth. And so they're saying, we need to find out if this is true. And so we're going to go and read and examine daily the Scriptures. And it reads, they were excited to do this. Isn't this so different than today? You know, we live in this modern age where if we want to look for truth, what we're told is to look inside of us and see how we feel, or we're told to look around us and talk with others and see how they feel and what they think. The Bereans don't do either of those. They don't see truth as being subjective. They see truth as being objective, that it's eternal, that it's unchanging facts. And so they dive into Scripture to discover truth. They're examining, they're questioning, they're looking eagerly to see what the Scriptures teach. And so if we both look at Thessalonica and at the church in Berea, here's what we see. When Paul and Silas were were teaching, they used words like this. Luke records that they reasoned, they explained, they proved, they proclaimed, they persuaded. Do you see how they were using Scripture? And then we see the Bereans in their humility. They eagerly received and they diligently examined the Scriptures. This is not some superficial, some cursory view of Scripture. Both hearers and speakers were were encouraging a thoughtful examination, a thorough response to the Scriptures. It's the attitude of Scripture towards Scripture that we see both from Paul but from the Bereans that is so important to us today. So what's the issue that's most relevant? What what do the Bereans lead us to talk about is we get to see how they viewed and how they valued and how they used Scripture. The Bereans received Scripture as their final authority. Everything else flowed out of that. And this today is essential for us. All the other controversial issues that I dealt with that a church may discuss or our culture or our world, it all starts here in how we view and value and use Scripture. What, what, what's, what, how do we feel about Scripture? What, 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 what value does it have for us? 
And so as we look at the Bereans and we think about their approach to Scripture, I just want to this morning give us briefly some characteristics, some attitudes, some attributes of Scripture so that we can sort of compare ourselves and we can see how we view Scripture. We often might think of the attributes of God, and we know some of the attributes of God. Think of the angels in the presence of God. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. Think of all the words they could use to describe God, but that's the one they choose. That's an attribute of God, his holiness. But then what are the attributes of Scripture? What are the, uh, the characteristics of Scripture uh, that we can learn from or that we can determine today and see in the heart of the Bereans? So what I want to do is just simply walk through these four. They spell the acronym SCAN, S-C-A-N. And so each one of those, each letter, gives us sort of a characteristic of Scripture. So I'll give the characteristic, then I'll give the definition, and then offer a brief explanation. And each one of these is so important so relevant for us today because we can get confused on other issues. We can get distracted on this issue or this issue, but this is the real issue, how we view Scripture. Think of for a moment if you were to go to your home and you were to look and see some water on the floor. Well, you might, you would be concerned. You'd clean up the water and that would be good. Then if you were to go back the next day and where you live and the water had appeared again, yes, you would clean it up, but you would also start to look around to see where the leak is coming from. Is there something in the foundation? The wall, is there a pipe? Is it in the roof? And, and this today is where we come. There's a leak in the foundation. There's a leak in the roof, and we want to look back to this core essential value. So it's SCAN, S-C-A-N, the four characteristics of Scripture. The first is S, sufficiency. God's word is enough. And let me just read this definition for you and you'll see it. Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. This first value of Scripture just simply reminds us that God's word is enough, that it is sufficient. And let me just speak of this as it relates to our salvation. Here's what we all would agree on, that what Christ has done for us on the cross is enough. It is sufficient. And, and how do we know that it's sufficient? Well, because we know the Bible tells us that all Christ has done for us in our salvation is sufficient. It's not incomplete in any way. And so if Christ's salvation, if the Bible was incomplete, if it was insufficient, then also we wouldn't have enough information to be able to say our salvation is sufficient. But because Scripture is enough, the work of Christ is enough. And because the work of Christ is enough, then Scripture is enough for us. Now, when we say the Scripture is sufficient, I'm not saying that everything we want to know about is found in Scripture. The Scripture doesn't tell us everything we want to know about everything. I'd like to know how, about how to get crabgrass out of my lawn. But the Scripture does not address that issue. But the Scripture does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. The Scripture tells us everything we need to know about what matters most. Now, it doesn't give exhaustive information on every subject, but on every subject it speaks to, it tells us what is true. And so as we mark that Scripture is sufficient, that it's enough, we remind ourselves that we shouldn't add to Scripture. If the Bible doesn't specifically speak to something, we should be very careful to add anything to what Scripture has said. But also, on the other side, we should be very careful to subtract 
what Scripture says for us. You know, someone sent me, it was a public post on Facebook about a group of churches that were gathering. And here's how they reported what they were doing in their gathering. I share this because it was public knowledge on Facebook. Here's one of the quotes from what this church, group of churches were doing. They asked the participants to be bold in their imagining of what and who God is calling the church to become. So let's get together. Let's be bold in imagining what God has called the church to be and to become. Now that sounds really nice, but where are they looking for truth? Well, they're looking inside. Let's be bold and imagine, and then let's share that. Let's share that with each other. That was their source of truth. Let's listen to our hearts, and let's listen to each other's hearts. That's not what the Bereans did. The Bereans didn't gather around and say, let's be bold in imagining. They gathered around and said, let's be diligent in examining the Scriptures. Let's find the truth in Scripture. And I might say this, we don't get to gather around and be bold and imagine what the church gets to be. God has said what the church is. And our job is merely to look into his scripture and see how he has spoken about the nature and the characteristic of the church. So as we think about the sufficiency of scripture, here's the good news for you today. That God has spoken and his words are enough for us. Here's what it means to us today. You can hear the voice of God today. You can hear God speak to you. And the way you hear his word spoken to you is you go to the book that records every word that he has said. Immerse yourself in the word of God and you will hear God speak to you through the very words of Scripture. You don't need any other special revelation. Everything you find in this word of God, immerse yourself in it. You will not find anything more sure. And so the first idea is the S, is the sufficiency. Scripture is enough, and it reminds us that God has spoken to us in all that we need in every issue. He has spoken there into us all that we need on what is most important. So that's sufficiency, yes. Now we go to the C, which is clarity. The clarity of Scripture, that Scripture is understandable. And let me give you this definition, a little bit wordy from the Westminster Catechism, but it's an excellent definition. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of ordinary means may obtain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Here's what that definition reminds us of. There are some things in Scripture that anyone can open, both the learned and the unlearned, and just through ordinary means, reading the Scripture, we can understand and come to a sufficient understanding of what God is speaking to us. Now, that definition reminds us this, that not all the Bible is equally clear. But, but here's how we would say it. Not every idea is totally clear, but here's what the definition reminds us of, and I've said this phrase, phrase, phrase before. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And that's what that definition reminds us of. Scripture is clear. Scripture is understandable. And sometimes today in our times, in our culture, we think about God or we think about truth, and someone will use this elephant illustration. 
They'll say, you know, truth is like an elephant, and some of us are at the trunk, and we think it's a hose, and others of us are at the body of the elephant, and we think it's a wall, and others of us are at the tail of the elephant, and we think it's a broom. And so none of us see the whole picture of truth and God. We all just see little pictures of it. And that seems so nice, but let me make two responses to that. First is, my first response to someone saying that story is, well, then how do you know it's an elephant? Someone has to say it's an elephant. If we're all only seeing a piece, why then are you seeing the big picture that it's an elephant? Why am I not seeing the big picture and maybe you're only seeing a part of it? See, that illustration falls apart because someone has to have all comprehensive knowledge. Someone has to see the elephant. Someone has to see God and truth. So whether it's you or me, one of us has to be seeing it in order to know that it's there. That would be my first response, that there is truth, that there is God, that there is an elephant there in the room. But then here would be my second response to that. We're not blindfolded. We don't need to grope around and try to figure out what God is like and what truth is. The elephant, to use that illustration, has spoken. God has showed up and he has revealed himself in the living word, the person of Jesus Christ, and in his written word. God, in some ways, takes off the blindfolds so that we can see him and know him. And who God in and his truth is clearly revealed in scripture so that we can read and understand it. So here's where this doctrine takes us, that the scripture is clear and understandable. Here's what we would say. There is only one correct interpretation of Scripture. Now, I say that humbly, but the reality is if God has spoken and there's clarity of Scripture, there only is one interpretation. And sometimes we might get into discussion and people say, well, that's just your interpretation, as if we all get to just choose our own interpretation, and that's okay. That's moving away from this characteristic that Scripture is clear and understandable. Jesus believed this himself. When he quoted the word of God, and he did this many times when he quoted the Old Testament, he says, the word of God says. Jesus believed that scripture was clear and understandable. Now, I know we come to different conclusions about different things for different reasons. Sometimes the plain things, to be quite honest, we just don't like them. We don't like them personally, or we know our culture won't like them, so we go to adjust them. And But we should be very clear to misinterpret or to change the plain things of Scripture when the historical church and the global church has a common understanding of them. Then there's not the main things and not the plain things, and there is disagreement on those. But let me say this, that's not uncommon. Every field has their disagreements, and we shouldn't exaggerate the differences. When we're all agreeing on the main and plain things, yes, there are differences, but we should not over-exaggerate them. But here's the good news for you, is that you can understand the Bible. It's written in such a way that it is clear for you. So go to the Scriptures. When we believe the Bible is clear, we run to the Scriptures to examine, to learn, to study, to be like the Bereans. So that's our second characteristic of Scripture. The first is that Scripture is sufficient. It is enough. And then secondly, the Scripture is clear. The clarity of Scripture, it's understandable. S, C, and then we move to the A. The A is authoritative. God's Word is final. It's an authority for us. And let me read this simple, quick definition for the authority of Scripture. 
On every matter in which Scripture means to speak, it has the final word. On every matter where Scripture means to speak, it gets the final word for all matters of faith and practice. In fact, what this reminds us of, that as we disobey or disbelieve Scripture, it's like we are disobeying or disbelieving God himself. And I know this idea of a final authority could maybe seem harsh, but let me put it in these terms. We all have a final authority for something. We all go back to something where we say, okay, this is the final thing that's going to make the decision. This is authoritative. Some people, it might be their parents. For others, it could be the government and their word. For others, it can be the group we're a part of, our community, our friends. For others, it can be the culture. Certainly, the culture is always right. We need to agree with it. It's the final authority, and oftentimes, it just is our own feelings, our own opinions. We all have something that is our final authority. And what we appreciate about the Bereans is they sought for truth. They said, let the word of God Let the scriptures be our final authority. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you are new in your journey, here's what I would ask you to decide right now in your heart. Just decide as you come to see and learn more scripture, pre-decide that you're going to allow the scripture to be the final authority. Just declare it now in your heart. Saying, you know, I'm going to follow and I'm going to obey. And as I come to see and understand the word of God, I am going to follow and obey it. But let me also this morning speak to some of you who have maybe never yet heard the gospel message or never yet in any way submitted to Christ as the authority and the king in your life. So here's here's the word of the gospel that we would say for us today is that God came and he was authoritative. He, He gave us his rules and his laws, but yet we in our own independence turned away from God. We went our own way. We rebelled against him. And as we rebelled against God, the relationship we had with him was broken. And so we're out of relationship with God. And also that rebellion because of sin ends us up in brokenness. And there's all kinds of brokenness we end up to. But then in that moment, as we heard in our call to worship today, that when we are far from God, rebelling against him, Jesus Christ comes. He comes out of love for us. He dies on the cross for us so that our rebellion, our sin could be forgiven and so that we could enter into new life with him. He offers us to receive his forgiveness, his power to live, to spend eternity with him. And as he offers that to us, he says, just come, turn from your sin, trust in me and make me the king of your life. And so part of responding to Christ is making him the very king of our lives, surrendering control to him. And if you've never done that today, the way out of brokenness, the way out of rebellion, the way to restore your relationship with God is simply to turn to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I trust in you. Forgive my sin. And I declare that you are the king of my life. I surrender to you. I make you the final authority of my life. And as you reveal yourself in your word, I will follow. So that's our third characteristic. The first is this, the sufficiency of Scripture, then the clarity of Scripture, then the authority of Scripture, and then we come to the last one, the N, the necessity of Scripture. Scripture, God's Word, is necessary. Here's the definition. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. 
but it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. Here's what we learn here. Here's what we learn about the necessity of Scripture. God, everyone in their heart, through general revelation, knows that there is a God and knows that there are moral laws. And in many ways, the moral laws lead us to a moral law giver. But everyone knows that. that. That's what this doctrine or this characteristic teaches us. But we can know that, but then we do not know how to have a relationship with him. We can't figure that out on our own. We can't figure it out through human wisdom or personal experience. We need God to speak into that, and that's why he has given us the word. We need God's word to tell us who Jesus is, to tell us what salvation is, and tell us how to live. And so here's the application today. You need this book. It is necessary for you and for me. You need this book to know Christ, to know assurance of your salvation, and to know how to live. And this is what I so love about the Berean church. So appreciate about them as they sort of, we see them living out these four characteristics, the sufficiency, the clarity, the authority, and the necessity of Scripture. And we can look in and compare ourselves. We, We can see our attitude towards Scripture and how does it compare to them. And you can look in and not only compare yourself to this, but we can compare churches in this regard. And as again, as I've said earlier, this is the number one issue that I believe we're dealing with today. In fact, probably the most common conversation I have with many of you from Harbor is in regards to our churches, or is a particular church heading in the right direction, or is it heading in the wrong direction? And often that can be about various different issues. So let me just briefly speak into that today since I'm having this conversation so many times. How do we know if a church is headed in the wrong direction? How do we know if a church is headed in the wrong direction? Let me just give three clues that would help us assess that in regards to their view of Scripture. The first is this. They have a lowered view of the Bible. The view of the the Bible has been lowered. Suddenly people's feelings or personal opinions is taking precedent over facts. You might hear it said in this kind of way, well, the Bible is just a human book. Or you might heard it said, you know, that verse, it really doesn't resonate with me anymore. And you're just healing general characteristics of a lowered view of Scripture. Secondly, from there, there is a reinterpretation or a redefinition of historic Christian doctrines. Suddenly that the Bible is authoritative, that word is defined to mean it's just a guide for us. And or the love of God is redefined to mean that God is just a pleasant God. And that's what a loving God means, that he's just pleasant. And we even know as parents that the love of, the love of a parent for a child is so much greater than just being pleasant. Sometimes you hear it come out in these kind of words, well, I just disagree with a biblical author on this issue, or, you know, the church's historic position on this issue, it's it's archaic, it's old-fashioned, it needs to be updated for the modern framework. Sometimes it's easy, it's as bold as someone saying, you know, we just can't say that today because that's offensive. 
So the first characteristic is a lower view of the Bible. The second characteristic is a reinterpretation, a redefinition of classic historical doctrines. And the third characteristic would be this. The core message of the gospel is diminished or is lost. And and we have parts of the gospel, but the part of the gospel where it says that Christ came to die for sinners and the talk of sin and our accountability to God or the talk of Christ and all he's done for us on the cross is diminished or it is lost. Even the cross can become uh, embarrassing or appalling. And think of what Paul said. I, I wanted to know nothing while I was with you except for Christ and him crucified. For Paul, the central message of the gospel was Christ and the cross. Sometimes this idea comes out in these kind of phrases. You know, God wouldn't ever judge people. He's just a God of pleasantries. You know, we shouldn't really talk to anyone about sin. We should just talk about love. It's our job to love people and leave the rest for God. Or even sometimes, you know, we don't need to preach the gospel. We can just show them with our actions. And I agree, we should show them with our actions. But explaining the gospel, as we said, is absolutely necessary. And so those are the three ways that I would look in and and ask myself, is a church headed in the wrong direction? Do they have a lower view of Scripture? Are they reinterpreting and redefining directions or Christian doctrines? And then is there a low or diminished or lost talk of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially the cross? So if you're talking to someone, why does this matter? If you're having these conversations as I'm having these conversations, why is this important? What's at stake? Well, there's really two things at stake. There's a church component at stake, and there's a personal component that's at stake. Here's what's at stake for the church. Jesus shows up in Revelation, and he speaks to a church. And here's the words of of Jesus to a church. He says this, If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. What Jesus is saying to that church is, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and no longer recognize you as a church of mine. And as we read that verse, here's what we should be reminded. That not every gathering of people that gathers together is recognized by Jesus Christ as a church. The church is not about our leadership, our creativity, our ingenuity. It's not about our relevance. The church is about being under the authority of Jesus Christ and under the authority of his word. The church happens by the grace of God through the power of God. And we need to remind ourselves this is what's at stake, the very nature of the church. But as you're also talking to people about this, there's something personal that's at stake for each person. It's very important. It's their understanding and their, uh, and their uh, comprehension of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes today, the gospel is explained like this. God is pleasant, and he'd like us to go and do nice things. And if that's someone's understanding of the gospel that you're talking about with, if they've missed the essentials of sin and repentance and Christ and the cross, what could be at stake is the very uh, very state of their soul their salvation, but certainly the assurance and the freedom and all that Christ offers to give us from the cross. That could be at stake personally, but certainly here's what it's, what's at stake. When we have a lowered view of the Bible where truth is diminished, what's at stake are the very words we live by, which give us life, which feed us. The word of God is the bread of life. It is nourishment for our souls. 
And what's at stake is this is absolutely necessary. We need feeding of the Word of God on a regular basis. This is why we appreciate the Bereans. This little church, and Paul stops by, and we've got about two verses about them, but we see their attitude. We see the way they viewed Scripture. And it's a great reminder of the nature of the church, and it's a great reminder of how we should be as people towards Scripture. I'll just close with these words from Peter. You know, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, what did he learn about the Word of God? You know, just imagine being with Jesus. You're going to see how he valued the Word. And Peter's hanging out with Jesus for three years. And then in 1 Peter, he writes these words to a church. And he says, the Bible is the living and enduring Word of God. I love those words from Peter. It's living. It's enduring. And then he quotes some scripture from Isaiah. And here's what Peter says. He says, all people are like grass and all are glory like the flowers of the field. Here's what he's saying. People are like grass, you know, nice and green. And then and all our glory, all the things we invest in, all the things we want to build, they're like flowers. And this is a good time of year to be thinking about grass and flowers. The grass is green. The flowers are blooming. But then Peter says next, and, all, and grass withers and flowers fade. And he's saying all of human life is green for a season, but eventually it just withers away. Our lives are short, and all the glories that we invest in, they just fade away like a flower in the fall. And after he's made that comparison, he writes these words to his audience. He says, but the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. And Peter's saying, our lives and all we invest in is going to fade away, but there's one thing that's lasts, and it's what God has spoken to us. And it's those words that we put our hope and our heart in. It's those words that give us assurance as we move forward, and it's those words that we prioritize. Let me pray for us today. God, thank you that your word is living and enduring. And God, we think of how everything else will fade away but your words last. And so, God, we put our confidence in that, Lord, in, for our salvation, for our eternity. And, God, all you've done for us in Christ is true and unchanging and will last forever. Oh, God, we praise you and worship you for your living and enduring word and your living and enduring promises to us. And, God, we pray as individuals. We pray as a church. Oh, God, that you would enable us to value your word, to make it the final authority, God, progressively more and more, and in our lives and in our midst. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We live in a world today where there's no idea that there's actual truth. And God has spoken to us. He's given us his living word, his truth. And so when you encounter people this week, know that what their souls need is the truth of the Word of God, the very bread that nourishes our souls. Harbor, we are sent.